Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Well, hey, thanks for being here. Um, My name is Tyler. Uh, It is always a pleasure to be uh, with you in the room. And for those of you that are joining us online, we're glad you're here as well. Before I came here to serve on staff, uh, I was serving in college ministry a little bit down the road, uh, or up the road, I guess. Uh, And one of the things that I realized in that season of life, it's kind of that season for many people. They, go, they graduate school and they move on, and, and for many of them that time is when they get married in their early 20s uh, to mid-20s, and that was the people I was working with, so we went to a lot of weddings, and I realized um, I actually enjoyed going to weddings in that season, uh, and really two reasons that I enjoyed going to weddings. One is because there really is something remarkable and uh, even sacred about this ceremony in which these two people are committing their lives to each other in love and in commitment and saying, hey, you are the person that I think God has given me to walk through this journey of life for as long as that is for us. And the second reason I loved weddings is much less mature. I love weddings because you never know what's going to happen, and they can go off the rails so quickly. I am lucky enough to have been at a wedding where a bridesmaid lit her hair on fire. Fortunately, the girl beside her was like Johnny on the spot and like started slapping it real quick and put it out before things really got out of hand. But when you think about it, with the amount of hair product and candles these things usually have, you're kind of surprised it doesn't happen more often than it does. Uh, in my own wedding, we narrowly averted disaster uh, because when my now father-in-law went to walk my wife down the aisle, his first step, he stepped on her dress. And they turned and looked at each other, and one of them had a look of, oh no, and the other one had a look of, I will put you in the ground if that happens again. <laughs> You can decide who was looking at who, the same, but for the entire way up the aisle, my father-in-law walked like this, just to ensure that he wasn't going to do that again. You know, you can get on YouTube and search for Facebook, or sorry, you can search for, or you can do it on Facebook too, uh, you can search for wedding fails, wedding mishaps, and there's just this litany of what happens there. You may have even been at some weddings where something went wrong and you have stories that you could tell yourself, but I guarantee no matter how many crazy things you may have seen at a wedding, The wedding we're going to look at today has something that happens that's crazier than anything you've seen. So if you will, if you've got your Bible open, we'll be in John uh, chapter 2, starting verse 1, and read through verse 12. It says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever it is he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So I'm actually going to start in verse 11, because that helps frame this conversation. Uh, the 10 verses that came before this, John is kind of depicting what happens. And then in verse 11, it's almost like an editorial aside, where he's kind of explaining and helping us as his readers understand what it is we just read. And when he does this, he says, this is the first sign that Jesus did. Uh, this is John's favorite word when he comes to doing, when he comes to talking about the miracles of Jesus. He says, they're signs. 
This is key to understanding how John viewed them and how he wants us to see them. They're not just acts of power. They're not just miracles that are kind of amazing events. They're signs that tell us something that's true. We all know what a sign is. A sign is something we encounter that tells us about how things are and then invites us to respond in a particular way as may be appropriate. So, for instance, if you're driving down a road and you see this sign somewhere, what do we know that is? What's that telling us? Hospital. There's a a medical facility. If we find ourselves sick or injured, we can go there and get treatment. And we drive a little further and then we see this sign. And we think what? Oh, no, this is going to take so long. It's probably under construction, but there will be no construction workers. So, and then we drive a little farther and we see this sign and we think, hallelujah, the day is saved. The best fast food a man can get. Some of you may disagree and we commit to pray for you and that's all we can do. So we know what signs are. They tell us about what is going on and invite us to have a response. And this is exactly how John sees these miracles. And it's important, he doesn't pick all of them. He only picks a handful of miracles. We see others in Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, that John doesn't include. Actually, at the end of John's gospel, he says, hey, if we wrote down all the things that Jesus did, I suppose that the whole world would not be enough to contain them. And so John, after years and years and decades of telling the story about Jesus and reflecting with his time with the Savior, he picks about seven signs in his gospel and says, these are the things that are important for you to see that should wave you down, flag you down to say, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah who the Old Testament has promised. There's a lot of other stuff that could be written, but he chose these. Why? This goes back to the uh, kind of thesis statement we talked about when we started John's gospel. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is why John wrote all these down, and that's why John picks these signs and this sign in particular. It's not just a show of power. It's showing us how Jesus fulfills Old Testament promises the sign to point us to understand who Jesus is and how then we should respond to him. So let's back up and then look at what actually happens. Verse 1, it's, John remarks that this is the third day. Jarrett last week walked us through the passages right before this, the verses right before this, uh, where John calls his first disciples. And then he spends three days with them. John doesn't elaborate. He doesn't think we needed to know uh, what jo- Jesus is, does in those three days with his disciples we can assume that he's beginning to lay the groundwork of explaining to them, this is who I am and this is what I've come to do. But then John kind of picks the story back up. He says, there's, three days later, there's this event. Something happens. And that event is this wedding. And it starts by saying that this wedding, uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, was invited. And Jesus was also invited. And one thing I want to kind of pause here and think about is that Jesus was invited to this wedding. He didn't crash it. He didn't show up unannounced. Meaning that Jesus was the type of person that you wanted at your wedding. That when celebration, big events happen in your life, he's the type of person you want to be there to celebrate with you. And I say this because I think sometimes either we hear it from the world or sometimes maybe we feel it even if we don't express it. When we're considering the commands and the uh, way that God calls us to live. And we feel like sometimes it's there to rob us of fun. To take something from us that we really think would add to our life. The truth is Jesus is not a killjoy telling you not to do fun things. Nothing could actually be further from the truth. God gave us these good gifts to enjoy and to glorify him through. Um, I was actually at uh, Ugly Mugs across the 
street here, a coffee shop this week uh, with one of our church members um, having a conversation. And he was talking about what God has been telling him, teaching him. And he, uh, we weren't talking about this passage, but he just remarked that one of the things that God has been helping him learn is that we don't just glorify God and don't just worship God through uh, singing worship songs and going to church and reading our Bibles. We can actually glorify God through enjoying the good things in life, through, in that moment, a good coffee and a good conversation, through good food, through good uh, evening with a spouse or with a family, through taking a vacation to a beautiful part of the world, a mountain or a beach, and just a looking at how God designed these things, how God has given them to us. God made us to enjoy the world that he has made. Fun is not, fun did not come from the fall. God is not an over-stern schoolmaster that looks down at the world and says, what is going on down there? They're laughing? That's not supposed to happen. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from our Heavenly Father. Um, all the good things in this life were God's idea to begin with. We as a staff are reading Screwtape Letters. It's a book uh, by C.S. Lewis. Um, some of you guys may be familiar with it. It's a, a really interesting book uh, because C.S. Lewis, it's, it's complete fiction, um, fabrication, but C.S. Lewis writes it from the perspective of a senior de- uh, demon writing letters to his younger nephew demon on how best to tempt an individual that like, he's been assigned to tempt. And so it's just like you maybe had a mentor in your career that kind of helped you learn how to navigate things. C.S. Lewis is imagining what it would be like for an experienced demon to mentor a younger demon. And it's, again, complete fiction, but it's fascinating because it's really insightful that sometimes you read passages and go, oh, yep, that gets me every single time. Like, that right there, uh, I fall for it. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is just as C.S. Lewis kind of builds this world out um, and writes it down, he brings out, it's almost like this, imagining this big corporation, you know, like, uh, temptation Incorporated that all the demons are employed by. Because they'll say, like, these throwaway lines, like, I was talking to Steve in accounting the other day, and he said this. Um, but in, in this context, about a week and a half ago, um, two weeks ago, we read this passage talking about the good things that God has given us to enjoy. And you can remember this is uh, as if a demon is speaking to another demon. He says, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense on our enemies, which would be God, on his ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. God is the author of the good things in life, and we glorify him by enjoying those but we need to enjoy them in the way that God has produced them to be enjoyed, in the settings that God um, has given us. And that the commands of God, the limitations of God, aren't given to diminish, but to broaden our joy, not to rob us of life, but to give us life to the full. We're tempted by things that we think promise us freedom and good experiences, but what we find by that is they actually bring bondage at the end of the day. God's limitations put us in the best place to live the life that we were meant to live. So we think that sometimes if we indulge in something, it'll give us more life. But what Scripture tells us is by doing that, we're actually inviting death into our lives. And if we use the gifts God has given and the ways he intended, that's where we find our joy and our freedom. Uh, I've been heard about this study for a while, but this week I actually went and looked it up. They've done... uh, research on childhood behavior, and one of the things they researched is they had a, um, some group of researchers took some teachers uh, in their classrooms to, like, a playground. 
or a park, and they took them to a park with no fencing, no structure around it, just open-ended. And what they found by that is those kids tended to stay very close to their teacher. They wouldn't stray very far away. Now, of course, you've always got that one kid, little Timmy, that like as soon as you turn your head, he's like, oh, traffic, you know, and <laughs> bolts in that direction. But for the most part, they stayed close to the teacher because that was safe to them. Then they took those same, later on, they took those same teachers in those same classrooms to a, a park that had fencing around it. And what those kids did is they left the teacher and they went and played everywhere within that fenced space. See, when we see it, we think, we think in theory that fence brings limitations. Oh, there's things that we can't do. But in reality, in practice, the fence brings greater freedom because we know this is what it's meant to be. This is supposed to be the way it is. And it's the same with our Creator. He's given us good things to enjoy and put limitations on how to do so and when to do so, not to rob us of this fullness, but so we can experience it. And that happens when we use them as he intends. And then finally, how do we glorify God through this? We thank him. We give thanks and we recognize that these good things are good gifts from our Father. Let's move on and look at uh, the next passage, the next section of this passage, verses 3 through 5. I mean, it's, it's an odd interaction. You probably read that. Many of us read this and go, I'm not really sure what's going on in that moment. And so me, you know, preparing to preach this passage, my job is to be helpful and to help us understand what's going on. So I spent time reading commentaries and praying and thinking and talking to people about what they make of this passage. And I concluded at the end of that, that as I read this passage, I'm still not really sure what exactly is going on. And I say that kind of as an aside to our main point tonight, but I say, or this morning, but I say that because I have a lot of interactions with people, a lot of conversations that feel intimidated by the Bible. And I want this to be maybe an encouragement if you find yourself there. They're intimidated because either they think they should know more about the Bible at this stage of their life, or they're intimidated because they read things in scripture and they come to passages like this and say, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to get out of that. And that uh, that misunderstanding or that lack of understanding can be frustrating and can get them to disengage with Scripture. But my encouragement to, be, to you would be just continue to engage in Scripture. I've been teaching Scripture fairly regularly for over half my life. I had the opportunity to go and get a degree in how to understand the Bible. And I don't say that not to say, oh, look at how much I know about the Bible. I know quite a bit, but I'm still learning a lot. And I still come to passages regularly that I go, I don't know what to do with this. I don't understand why this isn't there. And if it's okay for me, as a professional Bible-knower person, then it's okay for you, as you seek to faithfully follow God, to read Scripture and go, I don't understand what this is. Yes, use commentaries, go find uh, resources on the Internet, uh, come have conversations with us or other people in your small group or Sunday school class. But when you read something you don't understand, go, okay, I'm going to continue reading. I'm going to say, I don't understand that. Maybe make a note if you journal or you kind of make notes. And then just keep going, keep engaging with the word of God. Because I promise you, if you do, you'll understand the message that God wants you to understand. So we're the beneficiaries of a lot of thinking, uh, of a lot of Christian thinking. When you've had 2,000 years, that's a lot of time for a lot of people to do a lot of thinking. And one of the things that people have thought a lot about is about the Bible. What is it? How did we get it? How can we trust it? What does it say? What does it mean? How is Leviticus and Deuteronomy different from Romans and Ephesians? Uh, all of these things. But one of the things they've thought about too, and if you dive into this subject, you'll see is they say, hey, they talk about the clarity of the Bible, the clarity of scripture. And what they get out of that is that the message of the Bible is clear. 
But wait, how is that? We just talked about how sometimes the Bible can be confusing. Yeah, there are details in Scripture that we get to and we go, I don't really understand how this fits the greater whole. Not every passage is equally as clear as every other passage. But what they mean is that the overall message of what God has done for us is clear. That all we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus and to live obedient lives to him afterwards is clear in Scripture. Even in this passage, we read it, and maybe this thing we're going to go, I don't really understand exactly what's happening there, but we understand what happens in this full story. We get the main point. We read scripture and we see, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's clear. For God so loved the world, we said this earlier, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Clear. What must, we do? what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. It's clear. God is not trying to hide his message from you. So if you find yourself in times discouraged by your lack of understanding of Scripture, press on into it because what you need to have, God is going to reveal to you. Engage. So back to the passage. Um, I will say, you know, again, I, I say all that just hopefully as an encouragement. Um, and then I'll say, I will tell you what I think is going on here. And as I've studied, I'm fairly confident in this. I just say I'm not, you know, I'm not going to bet the farm on it or anything because um, there's some other people that argue a little bit differently. Um, but what happens here? Jesus' mother, Mary, brings to his attention the wedding is out of wine. Now this for us, um, we don't probably understand the gravity of it. This is a ma- massive, major, social faux pas, awkward moment uh, in this culture. I was trying to think what would be akin to this. I must imagine, what if you threw a dinner party and invited five people, five couples over that were like, you were their only connection. There's one of those things you're like, hey, I want you guys to get to know each other because I like you all. And so you bring these couples together and then somehow you were off and after about three of the couples get food, you're completely out and you don't have enough food for your guests. And you're like, oh, this is awkward and kind of scramble and try and fix it. And then everyone sits down and conversation starts. And before long, the two loudest, brashest personalities in the room start going at each other about whatever the latest political hot topic debate is. And of course, they disagree and are absolutely certain on their point. So everyone's kind of sitting around going, well, this is awkward. And so one well-meaning gentleman turns to this lady beside him. He's just met trying to change the subject to hopefully redeem the night and goes, so man, when are you due? Only to hear back, I'm not pregnant. Well, that time already, you know, everyone drive safe. Have a good night. Horribly socially awkward. That's that kind of situation, but even more so, as I read kind of the background work on this this week, uh, some commentators believe that if this were to happen, if something like this happened, the guests actually had legal grounds to sue the hosts for a breach of their duty. Now, they're not certain. They say, well, we can't, there's not quite enough to be certain about it, but the fact that that's even thinkable underlines how serious an event this is, that you could potentially be legally liable for having run out. And so she's bringing this to Jesus' attention. And then Jesus' response is an interesting one. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, it's, it's Mother's Day. Um, I understand this can be a difficult day for many uh, that have experienced a recent loss or sometimes it reminds them of uh, a past loss of a mother or a broken relationship between a mother or a child. Uh, and so if you're here, I'll just say thank you for coming. Hopefully, worshiping together is a help and a comfort in that. Uh, but for those of us that are fortunate enough to still have our mothers, um, to be in a relationship with them, my guess is most of us will try to call them, to go see them if we're able. Uh, may I just make a suggestion that you don't start that interaction by saying, hey, woman? <laughs> it's probably not going to set the tone you're going for. 
Um, but to us, this comes across as like rude and, and kind of jarring. Uh, but that's not really the sense uh, that John is portraying here. This is one of the times when this is, you know, originally written in Greek. There's not a one-to-one translation necessarily for an English term. And so the translators do their best um, and are trying to kind of communicate like a neutral word here. Um, one, a couple of people I read said, think about this more as if it's like ma'am. But not ma'am like I teach Logan, hey, when your mom tells you something, yes ma'am, no ma'am. This is more like you're in the grocery store and you're trying to get attention of a stranger. Oh, ma'am, I think you may have dropped this. Um, and so they remarked, there's the, a tone of, everyone that I read talked about, there's a, a sense of respect in this term, but it's also an emotionally distant term. It's a distancing term. This is odd that Jesus would use this with his mother. And they all also agree out on why he would do this. The thing they indicated, like, why would Jesus use this term in this situation? And what they all agreed on is that in this moment, this is the launching of Jesus' public ministry. And as he launches his ministry, it redefines the primary factor on which he relates to everyone, including Mary. See, the, the primary dynamic that now defines their relationship is not that of the mother and the son, but it's that of a sinner who needs a savior. The unique relationship that she had with him as mother um, is still there, but now everyone, no matter their relational closeness or relational distance from Jesus up until this point, is now a person in need of the Messiah to come, and he is now taking on the role that God has put before him to do the work that the Messiah was sent to do so that we could come into right relationship with God. And so that's how he kind of starts this off, is kind of redefining their relationship. And then what about the second part, where he kind of seems to say, I'm not going to do it, And then he immediately turns around and does it. That's the kind of odd dynamic. Well, the thing we know that what Jesus is talking about here is when he refers to his hour has not yet come. And we know that, uh, what he means here, because this topic comes up a lot in John. We'll get through this as we walk through and talk a lot about what it means that his hour has or hasn't come. We see it uh, here. We see it in John 6, uh, John 30. Uh, chapter 8, verse 20, and other places, he says, my hour has not yet come. Then in verse, sorry, in chapter 12, it flips. The end of chapter 12, he says, my hour has come. He repeats that at the beginning of chapter 13. In chapter 17, again, others, but you get the idea. So what is this shift? What it means that his hour has not yet come, and then suddenly his hour has come. And what the difference is, the shift is, is John has shifted the narrative focus, starting in chapter 12, from what Jesus is teaching and who he is to what he has come to accomplish on the cross. It's John 12 where he says, my hour has come, that the time is right for me to be lifted up and by that draw all men to myself. The hour in John is the time in which Jesus completes the work of the Messiah that God has given him, that he'll die and be raised from the grave and ascend to heaven so that we can come into relationship with him. So here in John 2, he's saying, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to go to the cross yet. I've got other things to do. But what does that have to do with wine? And I think the key here, the, my understanding after thinking about this this week, is kind of clued in by Jesus has this habit of talking to people around him about something that's right in front of them, that's physical, that's common, that they understand, but doing so in a way that actually confuses his hearers because he's taking the meaning to symbolically apply to himself. We'll talk about this next week, but right after this passage, Jesus goes into the table, the temple and flips over tables, and then people ask him kind of what he's doing, and he says, hey, if you were to tear this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days. To which his listeners respond, what do you mean? It took our fathers 46 years to do this. You're going to do it in three days? Quickly, on the heels of that conversation, he speaks to Nicodemus, and he says, uh, they're talking about this, and Jesus tells him, hey, unless a man is born again, he cannot 
uh, enter the kingdom. And Nicodemus goes, what in the world do you mean? How can a man, when he's old, be born again? Chapter 4, he has a conversation with a woman at the well. And he asks her for a drink. And she goes, I don't it kind of gets confusing. He goes, actually, you should ask me for a drink if you know who you're talking to because I have streams of living water. And she goes, well, how do you get the water out of the well? She doesn't understand what's talking about. I think it's the same here with Jesus talking to Mary, this pattern that he sees, um, that he uses uh, several times in the next coming chapters. Because in the Old Testament, um, an abundance of wine is connected with the day the Lord will redeem his people, the day that the Lord acts in a powerful way to bring his people back. Uh, Amos 9, starting in verse 13, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow, uh, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Isaiah, another prophet, in uh, chapter 25, starting in verse 6, says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. So what I think is happening here is Mary is coming to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, we need more wine. We're out of wine. And Jesus here, in a way that only you can understand later, if we see the full work of Jesus, Jesus is saying, man, I'm the guy who's going to make the wine flow over mountains and valleys, but that day isn't quite here yet. See, she came knowing that he could probably fix this present problem they were experiencing, and his response is, lady, you have no idea how right you are, but you're not thinking nearly big enough. You're asking me to save this wedding couple from an embarrassment, from social embarrassment. I'm coming to save all of humanity from their sins. And I love Mary's response to this. So she turns and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. This is the response of a mom who's been with her son 30 years. It's like a, I know you're going to go ahead and do it. You know, probably with a little bit of mom eye thrown in just for good measure. (laughs) So then she goes, and then he she has this response, and then he does. Uh, he does the miracle. He does the sign. Uh, it says here that there's 60, or sorry, six 20 to 30-gallon uh, jars, water jars for Jewish purification rites. Uh, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, especially uh, Leviticus, um, Deuteronomy, you know that there's an extensive process of washing involved in the Old Testament. Uh, you had to wash hands a certain way, feet a certain way, bodies a certain way. You had to wash utensils. Uh, you needed a lot of water. That's why these jars are sitting there. Um, and so Jesus says, fill them to the brim. Or so he says to fill them, and they do, John notes, to the brim. And they take a master, uh, a sample to the master of the feast, and he compliments the bridegroom, uh, saying something along the lines of, usually they bring out the good stuff first, and then kind of gets worse as the celebration goes along, but you have saved the best to last. You've been holding out on us. You know, the... There's a difference in this room, I'm sure, about how people, Christians, approach the Bible and what it says uh, about proper use of alcohol. There's a difference in here about personal practice with that. That's not necessarily the point this passage is getting at. Um, the point is we can all understand that one of the effects of alcohol is that it diminishes the senses, that it nubs the senses. And so this is just remarking at the fact that the practical, the economic thing to do 
in an event like this for a lot of people, especially for a lot of people, is when people show up and are fresh, you serve your best and finest, and then as it goes along, it gets cheaper and a little less quality and a little less quality as people fail to care or realize it. And so it's just, that's why this guy is so shocked. He's saying, man, the feast has already been going on for a long time, and you're now bringing out the best of the wine. Remember what, um, well, let me say this. One of the things I wanted to note is that with Jesus, what came before is always replaced with something better. With Jesus, the best is yet to come. What was just water is now wine, but not just average wine, not poor wine. It's the best wine. Remember what Isaiah said about this? He says it's a feast of well-aged wine, aged wine, well-refined. And it's deeper than just beverage options. You know, Jesus here isn't turning all the Dasani bottles to wine. John specifically notes, and John does not waste words, but he specifically notes these aren't just water jars. They are jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. This is important in the Old Testament. Again, if you were going to be faithful to God's law in the Old Testament, you needed this water to be able to perform all the rituals, all the rites that the law requires of you. And so in Jesus, in doing this miracle, he actually presents a problem. Because if all the water in the jars that were meant for purification is now wine, what do you not have anymore? You don't have the water you need to do the things the Old Testament requires of you. And Jesus is intentionally, it's not just accidentally that he chooses these to make his miracle, to produce this sign about, he's doing this, this is a sign that what has come before is being transformed, that the old covenant that required these rituals and these sacrifices, he's saying, I came to fulfill that. That is no longer required. What I've come to do is replace the water that the law of Leviticus needed with the wine that the prophets looked for and longed for. With Jesus, what came before is always replaced by something better. Not only is the best yet to come, it comes in abundance, in absurd abundance. Uh, I've never actually done the math on this before. I've known the story for forever, uh, but I've never done the math. You have six jars, 20 to 30 gallons, so um, 120 to 180 gallons of water. It says they were filled to the brim. As much as there could be, they had of this water. So what is that? I mean, clearly that's a lot of liquid, um, but if you do the math, that translates to 605 to 908 bottles of wine, somewhere in that range. This is Andrea had to go to uh, Sam's yesterday, and so I said, hey, would you just kind of count enough to get an estimate on what they have out? Um, And so she did. She goes, it's probably like 1,500 to 1,800 bottles, Um, which, I mean, Sam, you go and look. It's a lot. It's a large section. Um, And so this would be like going into Sam's and saying, I need half of what you've got on the floor. Like, go ahead and bring the pallets and the forklift. We're going to put that out in my truck. This is an crazy amount of wine, especially for the fact that this is probably a small wedding. Where do I get that? So I get that from two things. One, uh, it says it's in Cana, and archaeologists don't actually know where Cana is. Most of the major cities, the decent-sized villages, they know where they are because of all the research and digging they've done. Uh, With Cana, they say it's one of like maybe three places, um, but it's not big enough that we really know where it is. The second reason we can infer this is because John feels the need for readers in his day, to say, in Galilee. Because he assumes that the people reading him won't know where Cana is. This is like if you go on vacation um, to Boston or Chicago or something, and you meet somebody in your hotel, and you get to talking to them, and they say, hey, where are you from? Um, You've got two options. You probably either say Houston, or you say, I'm from Alvin, which is outside of Houston. 
Because you don't assume that the person you meet that may be from Seattle knows where the city of Alvin is. You know, you know, people around here will know exactly where you're talking about. But if you get outside of this, you have to give more context clues. And that's exactly what John is doing. When he says Jerusalem, he doesn't say Jerusalem in such and such reason, region. He just says Jerusalem because no, everybody knew where that was. And so one thing, I, I was born in a small town. I went back several times um, for different events and different things. Uh, the one thing that happens in a small town is typically you have small events. Right? This makes sense. There's just not that many people to invite. And so this is not that big of an event. Yet Jesus makes this wine as if you're hosting something for thousands of people. He does this. Jesus makes this absurd, abundant amount of wine. Yet it's not quite what we see in the prophets. It's not quite dripping from mountains and rushing over springs, uh, rushing over hills. But it's a glimpse of that. It is better and it's abundant. And this is absolutely true today. See, when we meet Jesus in faith, we experience grace and forgiveness. We experience healed relationships with God and with others through Christian community. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yet we still look for a day that comes when we experience the full reality, the full measure of God's goodness to us. The jars today, as if you are in Christ, the jars of God's blessing to you are filled to the brim, but they're yet not yet running over. The promises of God in Jesus are fulfilled, but there's still more to come. Christian thinkers, even going back to the tradition that we have, have described this before. They call it that we live in the already, but the not yet. The already, but not yet. What they mean by that is uh, we experience many realities, what it means to be connected to God in relationship to him, but not yet the full reality of that. So we experience already, we already live in the forgiveness of sins, but we have not yet experienced the day in which God will eliminate sin and evil from the world. We experience a renewed, a connected, a reconnected relationship with God, but we do not yet see him face to face. We experience the power of the Spirit growing. We're already growing in the fruits of the Spirit, but we not yet fully embody those in our lives. We have access already to a great comforter, but we have not seen a day when Jesus and God wipe away the tear from every face. We've already been given so much, but we hope in what we have not yet experienced. experienced. And we need that because the days come and situations in life arise where we have to bind our hearts to a hope and a not yet to make it through current circumstances. John 16, 33, so Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I used to take this passage and kind of think it's trouble, uh, just having the sense of persecution of Christians. But as I've gotten older, uh, I think the context actually is much broader. I think it actually refers to just the overall sense of brokenness and difficulty and uh, pain sometimes that this world uh, entails. I miss uh, a few things about being younger uh, one of which is never having the experience of getting out of bed in the morning and like, did I pull a hamstring? Like, what in the world? What was I doing? Uh, but another thing is I remember going through life without really a sense of some of the difficulties that people around me were walking through. I was fortunate. I know a lot of people realize that that's true much before I did. Um, but it, I was kind of, I guess, sheltered from that for a while. But as I've grown and as I've gone through stuff on my own, as I've watched people around me go through stuff, I realize the amount of heaviness that some people have. I have a friend that served as a pastor um, that one day his wife came to him and said, you're a great husband. I should want to be married to you, but I don't, and I want out. 
Like, what do you do with that? I have multiple people that I grew up with that, that lost their spouses to uh, sickness or suicide, and they were left as a single parent of young kids. You know, we, we lose loved ones far too soon. People walk through uh, infertility and miscarriage, and the list can go on and on and on. Listen, the, the world is beautiful and full of joy, but it's also full of brokenness and hurt. There are hard seasons that we encounter. Um, there was a guy named C.S. or C.H. Spurgeon that lived in London. Um, he's known as the Prince of Preachers. He was the pastor of one of the biggest churches in the world at that time in the mid-1800s. Uh, um, he spoke, they estimate, to millions over the course of his life. Um, people still read his sermons. People still uh, read his devotional things that he wrote. Um, he was funny. He had a larger-than-life personality. Um, he was, like, genius-level IQ. He read many books a week, and you could ask him years later, and he could tell you what was in them and where he was when he read them. I mean, just by any success, this was an incredible life that this man led. But he also struggled with depression his entire life. And then he died. Like, that's not a fun story. That's a, bad, that's a terrible story. The only thing that makes that not a terrible story, if there really is a chapter that is not yet written, and not yet where every tear is wiped away. I love how uh, J.R. Tolkien said this in his uh, trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. He puts these words uh, towards the end in one of his characters, Samwise Gamgee's uh, mouth. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer we find in the promise of Scripture is yes. Not yet, but yes. And I know many, many, many are walking through heavy times. Um, For some, it'll be relatively short. Uh, Others have a long walk ahead of them. But the truth is all of us will find ourselves in this situation at one point or another. It's not a fun reality, but it is reality. And the hope I can offer, the best comfort we can offer, is that with Jesus, what is coming is truly better. There's a guy, a Christian thinker named Frederick uh, Beekner, that said, here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. This is the world. Beautiful things will happen. Do not be afraid. This is the world. Terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. We can say do not be afraid because we have the promise of the not yet. The sad really will come untrue. The hurts will be mended. And if, uh, C.S. Lewis puts this in his, uh, as he concludes his um, kind of work he's most famous for, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, the last book, the last page, the last few sentences say this as he's talking about what happens next with these characters that he's built out. He says, we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after, but for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia has only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every, or every chapter is better than the one before. Listen, coming to Christ does not make the hard times go away. They'll still be there, but I can promise you that if you pursue him, that if you put your faith in his promise of the not yet, you'll find that he is enough for today. And when you wake up tomorrow, you'll find he is enough for tomorrow. So Frank's going to lead us. I'll pray, and then Frank's going to lead us um, in a time just of response, and the worship team's just going to sing over us. And so we'd invite you, if you want to reflect, reflect. If you want to listen and read the words, do that. If you want to pray by yourself, or if you want to grab someone to pray, um, we just invite you to use this time as God would have you use it. So let me pray for us real quick. Father, 
um, thank you for this hope. Thank you that uh, in the good times and in the dark times of life, um, the beautiful and the terrible things, we do not have to be afraid because we hope uh, that you turn water into wine, that what is best is still yet to come because of your goodness and your promises to us. So may we live into that. Amen.